This morning's scripture reading is Mark chapter 11, verse 1 to verse 21. And here to read God's word is Jen McNaughton. Jen. Today's scripture is from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 19. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who were following were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We are in the last week before Easter. Uh, What's traditionally considered Easter week starts today. Uh, This is Palm Sunday, and the world, the Christian world, gathers everywhere in every location in every nation to celebrate this week of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and we want to enter into that moment now. And so to begin this week, to prepare for this Easter week, we're going to look at Jesus at a passage, actually the Palm Sunday passage, where Jesus communicates to us how to properly receive him. Uh, Several decades ago, many of you have heard of a man named Billy Graham. He was famous for preaching in large outdoor meetings. At one event, a man came forward at the end and gave himself up to receiving Christ and becoming a Christian. The interesting thing was that man was in the L.A. mob, and he was kind of an underling to the boss of the L.A. underworld, a man named Mickey Cohen. And he brokered a meeting between Mickey Cohen and this famous Christian speaker, Billy Graham, who spent hours talking with Mickey about spiritual things. 
He seemed quite interested. He actually attended some of Billy Graham's events. He heard the gospel multiple times, went public with his interest and his relationship with Billy Graham. And people thought he had become a Christian. He may even have prayed a prayer. But then a curious thing happened. The Christians who were now around Mickey Cohen noticed that he had reverted to still being the crime boss of Los Angeles again. So they, these Christians kind of got into his face and tried to disciple him out of being involved in a life of crime. Ever, after several attempts, uh, several meetings over several days, Mickey Cohen is reported to have finally settled it with these words. You never told me I had to give up my career. You never told me that I had to give up my friends. There are Christian movie stars, Christian athletes, Christian businessmen. So what's the matter with being a Christian gangster? If I have to give up all that, if that's Christianity, count me out. <laughs> Mickey Cohen seems humorous, but actually Mickey Cohen is like almost all of us. We're intrigued by Jesus. We're attracted to Jesus. We want the blessings Jesus gives us. We want the forgiveness that Jesus offers us. But we don't want to give up all that. We want our lives, our desires, our bucket lists, our dreams, our relationships. We want our kids to do the things we want them to do. We want our friends the way we want them. Jesus is this add-on. It's my stuff and Jesus for too many of us. And here Jesus says, no, I'm sorry. You can't have me that way. I'm no genie that gives you three wishes. I come to you only one way. This passage tells us who we're receiving, why we have to receive him as he comes to us, and how to receive him. Who, why, and how. Firstly, who we are receiving. In the first scene, which you see here, there are three scenes. In the first scene, Jesus is entering Jerusalem. He's been coming down slowly from Galilee. He has a pile of people with them. They're interested in him. And he obviously creates a plan. Because when he gets to about five kilometers away, that's where Bethany is, he tells a couple of the disciples to go in front of him so that when he gets to about three kilometers away, that's where Bethphage was, as far as we can tell, he would have them retrieve a young donkey colt for him to use for his entry. Now let's look at these details for a moment. He tells them to get this particular donkey and to say these particular words if anybody asks him. Say, the master has need of it, and I will return it immediately. All right. This doesn't mean much to us. But an original reader would initially, immediately, excuse me, be intrigued because of a couple things. First thing that would grab their attention is this. Nobody requisitions a stranger's animal for their purposes. That's just not done in that culture except by one class of people, royalty. The requisitioning of an animal from a stranger is an act that royalty does. It would have smelt like a royal moment. The second thing that was really kind of interesting here is that they asked for a donkey colt that had never been ridden. Now, unridden animals are usually reserved for sacred purposes. If you ask for an animal that's never been used for what it normally is used for, it's because you're devoting it to God for a sacred purpose. So these, there's already elements of royalty and sacredness in here. But let's keep going. Jesus then takes this donkey colt and mounts it and rides into Jerusalem. We think, eh, maybe he's tired, no big deal. Except look what happens around it. Well, hold on. 
Before we look at what happens around him, people in front of him, people behind him, yelling, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a processional. Again, it's attention getting. Now, who rides with a procession into a city? Well, Jerusalem was known as the royal city. Jerusalem was known as the city of God. And so here's the sacred city and this royal city. And here's this royal unridden animal that's been requisitioned for a royal purpose with somebody on it with a processional. That is a royal coronation ceremony. Especially when you know that donkeys were what royalty used in Jewish culture for coronation services. It was a donkey that David rode. It was a David's donkey that Solomon rode for his coronation. To ride a donkey into Jerusalem with this profession of people is to say, I am a king. But let's get even more specific. As Matthew explicitly points out in talking about this, Jesus is saying, I'm a certain kind of king. In the book written by the prophet Zechariah, probably five or six hundred years, maybe seven hundred years before this happened, Zechariah predicts that one day a final king for Israel will come. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. He's the final divine king. And then he says, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The final king won't just come on a donkey. He'll come on a foal of a donkey, says Zechariah. What's Jesus saying? I am that final king, righteous and bringing salvation with me. He's throwing down the gauntlet to the people of Israel, confronting the rulers and authorities and saying, I am your true king. And this is how he presents himself to us. And this, therefore, is how we must receive him. He comes to us as a king and in no other way. So we must come to him and receive him as he comes to us as king. Not as a friend. Not as an add-on. Not as someone who helps us get what we want. Not as some genie who gives us three wishes. But as the king who we submit our lives to, our agendas to, our kids to, our career to, our desires, our recreational time. First Peter 3.15, the Apostle Peter says, In your hearts, saying this to Christians, set apart Christ as Lord. Set him apart, revere him, magnify him. Luke chapter 6, Jesus himself says to people listening to him, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So, the Jesus who comes to us may come to us and say, I'm your king. Stop demeaning women by the way you look at them lustfully, either online or in any other way. Stop hoarding your money for your personal wealth, but learn to give it away generously. Stop allowing your career to be shaped by your and others' ambitions, and let your career be shaped by my ambitions for you. He comes as king. Now, I know there's an objection brewing here. And that is, we don't live in monarchies. We don't trust kings. We don't trust anyone with that much power. That's our modern culture struggle with this story. Why? Because we know our history. Human history is the history of power corrupting, or more precisely, of power removing the restraints so that the darkness in us, the corruption in us, has no restraints until it begins to take us over. 
And that's the point, isn't it? We're worried that any king will have that happen. But we need to look at Jesus and ask, is there corruption residing in Jesus that power will remove the constraints from so that he can oppress you? Is Jesus an oppressive kind of king that you're afraid to trust? No. 2 Corinthians 5 says Jesus knew no sin. Sinless he was. He has no corruption in his heart whatsoever. Hebrews 7.26 says he is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. We can trust this king for who he is. And how do we know that he's this sinless, this beautiful, this innocent, and this loving? Well, we need only to look a couple chapters later when we see what happens to this king who comes on a colt. Remember when Jesus said to the, to the, tell the owners, I'll bring it back immediately? Why? Because Jesus doesn't need it after this. He's going to get off the colt. And he's going to allow himself to be rejected, stoned, beaten, stripped naked, and raised not on a human throne, but nailed to a cross and raised naked for the world to jeer at and mock and throw stones at. And there... On that cross, naked, he will bear more than public shame. He will bear the guilt of your shame and mine. He will bear the evil and darkness and self-absorption and corruption of your heart and mine. He will, in compassion, bear the guilt that we actually have in our hearts. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Spiritual separation from God. He will take that wage. And he'll pay that wage with his own life. The Father, out of compassion for us, will, while he loves his Son, turn his anger on us, upon his Son, and pour out his anger on his beloved Son, Jesus. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says to the Corinthian church, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, innocent, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You can trust him to rule your life because he gave his life for you. It's no small thing to give him your whole life, your career, your relationship, your family goals, your bucket lists, I know. I remember trembling when in university I had to do it. And by the way, you don't just do it once. I have to do it and you have to do it daily because he's a king. But he deserves your life because he's a king that gave his life for you. And you don't deserve what he gave for you. But he offers it freely in exchange for yours. He offers you his. Submit your life to the king because he comes to you as king and in no other way. Christians, this week, Take a moment, reflect and meditate on the king who comes on a colt and then allows himself to be climbed on a cross. Submit your life to him. If you're here and you're investigating Christianity, think about what it might mean to give your life to a king who went to a cross for you. That's the only way you can receive the forgiveness is if you exchange your life for his. So let's take a moment now in silence and reflect on that before we go to our next point.
Secondly, why we must receive him this way. Why must we receive him as a king? This is the episode where Jesus comes to a fig tree. Uh, he'd gone back to Bethany after this triumphal entry. He was obviously sleeping there. He had places to stay. And now he comes back. In, on the way to Jerusalem, he sees a fig tree. Now, it's not time for figs yet. It's almost time, but not yet time. So the fig tree's in leaf. It has great promise that it will one day bear fruit. And Jesus curses it. Uh, some commentators have thought, oh, this is so petulant of Jesus. Why would he lose his temper when a fig tree's not even supposed to have figs? That's not what's going on. Jesus is deliberately doing something very different. We remember that Jesus, after he had entered Jerusalem, it says that he looked around at the temple. And so he knew what was going on there. He saw the corruption, that in the outer court of the temple, where the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, the other nations, were, were supposed to have a place to pray and seek God and worship Him, there wasn't that. There wasn't quiet. There was commerce. There were people selling pigeons and other animals. There, there were money changers helping, helping Jewish people maximize their convenience and helping the sellers maximize their profit so that the Jewish people could go to the temple right away for their sacrifices and with their temple taxes. You see, a place of worship had been turned into a place of convenience and affluence. The Jewish people traveled a long way to come, often by foot. They didn't want to drag their, their animals all that way. I get it. They didn't, they didn't want to exchange their money until they needed to. I get it. But let's slow down and think about this for a moment. Because the Greek grammar actually asks us to slow down and see the importance of this moment. Because when Jesus curses the fig tree, after seeing the temple, the fig tree is Israel and what's going on in the temple. He's acting like a prophet. In the Old Testament, many Jewish prophets would use fig trees as a symbol for Israel. Jeremiah 8.13 is a classic example. Here the prophet Jeremiah predicts this. God says, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. They will be, there will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree. Their leaves will wither. What have I, what I have given them will be taken from them. That prophecy Jesus is fulfilling right now. He's taking the figs from the tree because that's Israel. You know why? Because Israel is not wanting to worship the true God. And how does he know? because they're not accepting him as their true king. This is the curse upon Israel. If you don't accept me as king, you will wither. And those words to Israel then are sobering, compelling words for us now. Jesus comes to us as king and says, Receive me as king, or you will wither and be cursed. You will stop being whom you were made to be. You see, Jesus is saying indirectly what the gospel says in many other places, that we were made by God, for God. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7, the Lord says, Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, created by him, for him, for his glory. Now, we may look good on the outside like this fig tree did. We may seem to be kind and gentle and moral, progressive and ethical, even religious and spiritual. Like this fig tree, we show great promise of bearing some kind of fruit. But if we don't accept Jesus, that's the fruit that matters to God. This facade of health, 
will be shown to be false and we will wither and bear no fruit. In other words, we will not spend eternity with God and with God's people. When you think about plants, they wither for two reasons. Firstly, because they don't get enough sun and water and nourishment, they might wither. Secondly, there might be a disease that's growing in them and all the sun and water and nourishment doesn't stop the disease and they wither anyway. Jesus means withering in both of those two senses when he curses the fig tree. Firstly, the loss of sun and nourishment. When we die, we will all rise to an eternal existence. But some of us, and there's no do-overs, by the way. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is given for people to die once and after that to face judgment. We get one shot at this. This life is our one shot. Jesus says, if we reject him, we will rise again to a continued withering. Because the sun and the light and the water for us that nourishes our souls will have been removed from us. God all of his goodness and all that his goodness gives to this world, light and life and health will have been removed and will wither without God. We will feel his absence. And then there's a, there's a second thing that is going to happen. You see, there's a disease in us already, a virus more powerful than COVID-19. It's called sin, self-absorption, self-dependence, moral darkness it's in us and like a virus it will slowly if there is no antidote and there is no medication it will take us over and we'll be surrounded only by other people who are also infected they too being reshaped and deformed into ever more self-absorbed and selfish people with all of the goodness slowly being eaten away and we'll look around and we'll see these deformed really selfish, self-absorbed people. There'll be no one who's kind and caring. So we'll double down on our own self-absorption and self-protection. It's the only way to survive this. And we'll look around and wonder, when will this end? And it won't. Does it sound hellish to you? It is. I have just described hell. This is how the Apostle Paul describes the withering fate of those who don't receive Jesus. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 he says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, when he comes again, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. If you don't receive Jesus as king and don't exchange your life for his, you will wither. His prophetic word will come true. But if we come to him, if we believe in him, if we trust in him and exchange our life, he will allow us to bear fruit and flourish. He will come and take residence in us. The light of the love of God will be directly and immediately in our hearts and in our souls. And like the fig tree, that we will bear fruit. Jesus is the antidote to the great virus, the worldwide virus we call sin. He said, I came that they might have life and have it to the full. John 10, 10. John 3, 16, he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, I know there's an objection in some of our minds. This seems too exclusive. I've heard that for years in our culture. Well, do we still believe that? Let's think about COVID-19 for a minute. 
If there was one vaccine today found months, years before normal, and there was only one vaccine, we would say, well, that's really exclusive. I don't think I accept that. No, we'd love a vaccine. But we're never going to get an antidote. We don't get antidotes for these viruses. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus is the antidote. He takes the virus away. He takes the guilt and the alienation. He takes the diseasing of the virus and he kills it. Is that exclusive? No. That's good news. Good news. Christians, this is good news for us. But don't think this doesn't apply to us. This prophetic word of Jesus applies to us too. He says in John 15, verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, there it is, fruit bearing again, unless it abides in the vine, Jesus, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, they bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He continues, by this is how this is how my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, kingly language, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's and abide in his. You hear that? We receive the king by abiding by the words of the prophet. Let us allow Jesus the prophet to speak these words of withering and flourishing and let us choose life. Let us choose flourishing. This is why we must accept him as king. He is the only way we can flourish and bear fruit. The, uh, the opposite option is withering. Finally, how do we do this? How do we receive this king and exchange our life. You see, in the final scene, Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple. We've already talked about why, how the Jewish people had decided to use something very originally made for prayer and to meet God in worship, and they've corrupted it. It's now a place of commerce, a place of comfort, a place of affluence. People have been using the worship of God for their own agendas. Sound familiar? Sounds like Nikki. And the whole nation, by the way, is complicit. The people who use these markets for their own convenience. The sellers who make an extra buck of profit. The Sanhedrin who rented uh, the place out to the sellers, they get rent from the sellers. And the high priest who's in charge of keeping the whole temple pure, he probably gets a cut from the Sanhedrin. The whole nation, from the average person to the highest level of leaders, are involved in this desecration of the temple. This idea of using God and using his temple where he resides as a place for commerce and convenience. It's so outrageous that Jesus fashions a cord and creates a whip and he uses violence to drive these people out of the temple. And then he quotes Isaiah 56, 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now stop for a moment. Jesus has already announced himself as king. He's coming to Jerusalem on a donkey, the fall of a donkey, a Zechariah 9 final king. He's already announced himself as a prophet, cursing the fig tree and saying, this is what happens to all who will not acknowledge me as king. Now see Jesus doing what the high priest was supposed to do. Keep the temple pure. Keep it set aside, sanctified for its sacred purpose for people to meet God and worship God. 
His act is a violent act. But Jesus is saying, I'm the final high priest and the true one. And this violent act foreshadows another violent act that in a much more profound way will cleanse and restore God's true temple. You see, the book of Hebrews tells us that this physical temple is only a a, a type, a shadow, a foreshadowing of the true temple, the temple where God actually resides in heaven. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the promised high priest who will go into the heavenly temple to do the heavenly sacrifice. Listen to Hebrews chapter 8. He says, the main point of what I have been saying so far, the whole first seven chapters, is this. We have such a high priest who has taken a seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary in the true temple which the Lord made, not man. Do you hear that? The temple in Jerusalem points to the real temple, the one in heaven where God resides. The the human high priest's role in offering a sacrifice that would forgive the sins of the people of God for a year was a foreshadowing of a day when a final priest would offer a final sacrifice in the true, real tabernacle that would forgive those sins for all time. And that's what Jesus did. When he went to the cross, he said, it is finished. The final high priestly sacrifice has been made. And so Jesus goes into the true and final sacrifice to offer a sacrifice of life and blood, his own. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not of this creation, the heavenly temple. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of animals, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This sacrifice by this high priest of his own life made full atonement, paid the full price for all the sins of all the world because he was the infinitely innocent sacrifice. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, fully human, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you're not yet a Christian, if you're still investigating, listen to this. This is for you. You have a place where you may receive mercy and find grace. Jesus has done this act. He's waiting for you to receive him and receive the worth, receive the accounting for this act, receive all of the grace of this forgiveness of sins if you're just willing to give him your life as your king. Do that now. We were always, all of us, born to make God our temple, born to have God reside in us. We were made by God for God. We were made to be His temples. And if you're not yet a Christian, you haven't yet made Him your temple, you probably have some other thing that's guiding your life, that's grounding you, that's making you feel whole, some other thing that you are actually worshiping. And God wants to displace that and put Christ there, Christ the King. But God also wants to bear all the guilt for that by allowing you to accept the forgiveness that Christ, the King who is a priest, has already done for you.
Now, many of us here who are Christian, we've accepted that cleansing. But we need to remind ourselves of that cleansing because there's a lot of garbage in our lives. I, I get a, um, a text every week from an app in the city that says, tomorrow's garbage day. This is what needs to be taken out. <laughs> every one of us who's listening knows after a second of reflecting, there's a lot of junk in my soul. There's a lot of things that I lust for, that I care for. There's a lot of dark desires that I have that are not good for me and that they don't please God. Maybe today's garbage day. Allow Jesus, the Jesus who created the temple in you by going and being the final priest. Let Jesus come now and cleanse your heart of the temple. Repent of those things. Confess them to him today. Accept his cleansing. If for the first time, let him set the temple up. Accept his cleansing. Meditate on the forgiveness of sins, but also allow him to remove the things that are getting in the way of you worshiping and you letting others see God in you that they might come to worship. Accept his cleansing. Accept his rule. Give him those false gods for good. Give him those desires, those agendas. They weren't ever yours to begin with. They're false substitutes for the real desires that God has for you in his deep love and compassion. He has a better life for you than you even know about. Accede to his rule after you've accepted his majesty and finally adore that majesty. Spend the week meditating on the greatness of a king who comes on a colt and then gets off the colt and allows himself to be to, to be hoisted onto a cross. Adore the one who comes and prophetically says, bear fruit by listening to me. Adore the one who gives the final and great sacrifice as the final high priest by giving his own life, his own infinitely worthy life for us. City of Light has these words in one of their songs. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overcome the grave. What a gift of grace is my Redeemer. There is more for heaven now to give. There's no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. Adore your deep and boundless peace. Let us pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you that you come to us only as king, that you warn us to accept you as king lest we wither, and that you prove a way for us to accept you as king by coming into the final temple and cleansing us of our sin, that we can stand faultless before you, righteous before you, guiltless and shameless and confident before you. Help us to come to you now that way and then adore you forever. This is Easter week. Let it be a week of accepting your cleansing, acceding to your rule in our lives, and adoring your majesty. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.